once you step into that period of darkness, once you you take that hard journey and things get hard and you have that little voice when you're cold, wet and tired in the middle of the night that says, hey, you're not good enough. You don't belong here, right? That's when you have to be able to push motivation to the side and really dig into your discipline, right? And discipline is simply being able to better align your actions, your behaviors with your goal, right? And a lot of guys who aren't successful couldn't do that. Simply put is they just weren't committed enough. Hey everyone, I'm Cal and welcome to the Intentional Leader Podcast. No matter how you are coming to this show, I hope you leave inspired and with some practical tools to help you lead yourself more effectively and to help you have a higher impact as a leader. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's go make it count. Well, hello everyone and welcome to episode 92 of the Intentional Leader Podcast. Today, I'm really excited to bring you my conversation with Navy SEAL Stephen Drum. And I want to apologize for being off of my normal cadence with this episode. I typically release a new episode every two weeks, but last week I spent that my time that I allot to working on this podcast to preparing for my session on self-leadership at the moment too an event put on by military mentors in Alexandria, Virginia. It was a ton of fun to participate in the event and to share on a topic that I am very passionate about. So it was fun to talk about self-leadership. A lot of what I shared at that event, I will share with you at some point over the next year. And a big thank you to Chevy Cook, Sabrina Dalton, and the entire team at Military Mentors for putting on such a special, impactful event. And thank you for letting me be a small part of that, I highly recommend trying to attend their next event, the moment, I think that's what they're gonna call it, in January of 2023. And if you are interested in learning more about this event, go check out the last episode where I interviewed Sabrina Dalton, who's their director of programs at Military Mentors, and we also talk about what it's like to lead as a mom. So go check that out as well. Now, my guest today, Stephen Drum, was really fun to interview. As you'll see, he has great energy. He's very passionate about helping individuals perform at a high level under pressure. We all need that. No matter if you're a Navy SEAL or not, you need to be able to perform under pressure. He's a Navy SEAL Master Chief with 27 years of experience leading and developing high performance team. He co-developed and taught warrior toughness training for the U.S. Navy, which fundamentally changed the culture of the Navy and how it trains and prepares young sailors and officers. Stephen has personally trained thousands of elite soldiers and Navy SEAL candidates, helping them succeed in severe training courses and overseas combat operations. In this episode, we dive into his journey of becoming a SEAL. We talk about who doesn't make it through SEAL selection his view of discipline, how to perform under pressure, his new book on the X and what that means. And we talk about some specific ways to lead yourself. This is a fun episode. Now, before we jump in, I want to make sure that I get you our 12 key ideas for helping you make a better leader in 2022. Just go to intentionalleader.org, get this free PDF. Basically, we took 12 of our best interviews over the past three years. We distilled those into 12 key ideas that you can take one at a time over, say, two weeks. And it's a great takeaway. So go check it out. It's a free guide, intentionalleader.org. You can easily download it there. 12 ideas to make you a better leader in 2022. Also, I'd be honored if you'd consider 
partnering with Intentional Leader on Patreon. You can become a monthly patron of Intentional Leader. You can donate a dollar, two dollars, five dollars, anything that you feel inspired to donate to help us in our efforts to inspire leaders in all sectors of society to lead themselves better, to inspire those in their sector of influence, and to ultimately make the world a better place. We're dedicated to this mission. And if you want to join us early, we're still very early in this mission, please go over to Patreon. I'll put a link to it in the show notes and become a supporter of Intentional Leader. We will know your name. We'll know exactly what you're giving. We will not forget your early contribution to what we're trying to do here at Intentional Leader. So if you want to join us at Intentional Leader in a very real way, go to our Patreon page and please support us in what we're trying to do. And thanks to all of you. Another way you can support is those of you that have rated or reviewed this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. That goes a long way. I see those reviews. I read all of them and I'm very thankful for them. So thank you for your support. So without any further ado, let's jump into this exciting conversation with Navy SEAL Stephen Drum. All right, Steve, welcome to the podcast. I'm so pumped to have you on today, man. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Cal. And we just talked to, we talked about where you're living right now and uh, out there in beautiful Charlottesville. So I was a little bit jealous. I love that area. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we are pumped. And thanks for being patient as we got moved, got settled with a new baby, got internet, you know, it took a while to actually get Wi-Fi up and up and running. So that was that's always fun. The, the the joys of moving, which it sounds like you've recently or not, maybe not too recently, but you've moved from your uh, longtime location there in Virginia. Um, we'll take you back anytime. Come on back to Virginia anytime. No, that's right. No, I moved. Uh, yeah. And I and you and I were discussing this. And as an enlisted guy in the military, at least in, in special operations, you, you're afforded the opportunity to homestead a little bit. Now, the operational tempo is, is higher maybe than a lot of the officers uh, but the officers and their families have to pick up and move every you know two three years, and so I, I had been really in Virginia Beach uh, since I graduated Buds in 1996 until 2015 when I moved up here to the Chicago area. And so I moved up here. We weren't planning on staying, right? But then the kids really liked it. They were kind of nestled deep within you know school and community, and so we ended up buying a house. Fortunately, it was only two streets away, so the move wasn't that bad. <laughs> nice. All things considered. Well, let's talk about your story becoming a SEAL. Like, how did you even decide to become a SEAL? You said back in 1996. Yeah. So, ever since I was a kid, right, I always kind of had some connection to service. And I was always kind of leaning more into the direction of the Army. I looked at Army Green Berets in Vietnam doing cross border operations that, uh, I mean, just really the bravery and commitment to do something like that. I mean, I was just in awe of those, and I still look up to those people. And I even had my my uncle of mine who took me down to Fort Bragg, took me on a tour. <laughs> but he also, being a former, and you'll see his, for those of who may be watching this on YouTube or whatever, you see this aviator helmet in the back, right? Because I, I feel everybody kind of needs that one person in their life that really believes in them. And that was my my uncle Jack, or my, my paternal uncle. And so he kind of was still always kind of nudging me towards the Navy. And he says, you know, the Navy has special operations forces too. They're called SEALs. And at one point he handed me a book on SEALs in Vietnam. And from there, I just started learning more. And I realized, hey, you know, unlike the Army at the time, I didn't have to join the Army and go serve two, four years before I get a look at going to be a Green Beret. I could come right off the street and be a SEAL. And so that's what I endeavored to do. Unfortunately, I always tell the story 
I was really, really bad at math and so bad, in fact, that I missed the qualification for SEAL training by just a handful of points. Oh, wow. And I always say, I don't know if I was dumber for being bad <laughs> at math or dumber for the fact that I believe my recruiter when he told me that they'd waive those couple extra points. <laughs> so I went up there, went to uh, up to work on, went to boot camp, didn't get a shot to go to SEAL training, worked on submarines for a couple years in Groton, Connecticut, and then finally got orders to go through uh, SEAL training out in uh, Coronado, 1995. Wow. So is this this math you're talking about, is that just a basic entrance test or is that specific for joining the SEALs? Well, it's, a, you know, I don't, I, I sh I'm sure you you took the same thing, but at least in listed guys, I, I don't know if officers take this. I thought maybe you would. It's called the ASVAB. Have you heard of that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the, yeah. so the ASVAB. Okay. Yeah, it's basically Which is like, like the basic assessment to come into the military, right? Enlisted. Uh, that's right. That's okay. right. Because, you know, it presupposes many don't have a college degree and things like that. So yeah. it's essentially the ASVAB, you know, for those not familiar with the military, it's essentially ACT, SAT for the military. And so within that, you have to have certain scores to qualify for certain jobs. Now, if you're super hyper smart and score really, really well, they almost always want to poach you for the Navy uh, nuclear power program, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, smartest, biggest heads in the military. But uh, yeah, so I just missed it by a couple of points. It's like basically... I really suck at math, especially word problems, like algebraic word problems or whatever. So yeah, uh, I, I struggled. I had to actually retake the test. I got some, and that's where my uncle helped me out. He said, Hey, you know, I didn't make much money. He said, I'll pay for you to get some tutoring, wow. tutor, uh, retake the test. And that's what I did. And it worked out. And you, so back in, at this point, 96 was the idea of a Navy SEAL. Was that not very well known? Because nowadays, you know, with movies and books and I mean, I feel like everyone wants to be a SEAL. It seems back in that day, though, was that was it as popular as it is today? Well, no, it's like it, it certainly wasn't. Nobody knew what a Navy SEAL was. You know, there was the book, the Charlie Sheen movie that came out. Right. And I think that was 1990. I graduated high school in 92. I joined the Navy uh, the fall of 92. And so the Navy SEALs from, you know, with Charlie Sheen, that, that movie came <laughs> out. But, you know, it's like not everybody saw it. Not everybody knew yeah. about it. Um, and, you know, Magnum P.I., they didn't say he was a SEAL. But then going back, you see <laughs> that he was wearing like the tridents and all that kind of stuff. And you could just kind of put that together. Uh -huh. But no, I mean, it wasn't. People did not know. I told people I want to be a Navy SEAL. Like, what the heck is that? What is that? It, it, yeah. So. <laughs> So two year, a couple of years, it sounds like doing working on submarines, and then you get a another shot to become a SEAL. Yeah, you know, it's always a factor of how things work out. Like I, I hate that term. Everything happens for a reason. I just I don't know why that grates on me. No good reason <laughs> that it does. But you know, I think sometimes it's about like that bus go, goes by, right? And, and you either get on it or you don't. And I, I fortunately just, and sometimes it's, it's fate opportunity that, that, that just, you know, falls in front of you. There was a guy who was a former SEAL. Um, he was still in the Navy, but he had kind of like kind of basically given up the SEAL job to move up to New England to be closer to, uh, he was divorced to be closer to his kids there. And so he was just at the sub base. He basically was a photographer's mate because back then you could, uh, before the SEALs became their own source rating, their own MOS they had secondary jobs. I was a whole maintenance technician. It was like basically like a Navy plumber. He was a photographer's mate. And so he just took it upon himself that everybody who wanted to go and do SEAL training, he would run workouts and gave us a lot of good mentoring. So I'm very grateful. And, you know, at the end of the day, I was two years 
uh, more mature than I was when I first came in. And I, and I think that that really probably made a difference. And ultimately, I don't know if I would have been successful had things not turned out the way that they did. Tell us about SEAL training. I mean, I, I actually had, uh, I don't know if you know Chris Fussell. He works now yeah. with the McChrystal Group. I had him on a couple months ago and he kind of talked through some of the stages and stuff. Um, so those that heard that interview would be pretty familiar with some of the phases, but from your experience, what were the hardest parts of becoming a SEAL? So a quick backstory on that. I went through buds with Chris's older brother. Oh, way. no way. Yeah, John. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so John was a, he was a stud older guy, older than the rest of us. I think he got hurt. You know, he had those old bones got rolled back, but he was, he was, uh, he was a stud. He was like the best at the obstacle course. Um, and, and so I, I met Chris before he joined the Navy, he actually made me a, he actually made me a bed. He no way. was a carpenter, great carpenter skills, built me a bed. Huh? That's, <laughs> I hadn't seen him. In, I haven't seen him in years, but yeah, good, good couple of guys, both of them. Mm. And so uh, uh, what was the question? Again? <laughs> well, no, I, so I was just going to ask. So, well, real quick on Chris, he said, cause I, I had this image of, you know, who would be successful getting through seal training. And, you know, he talked about some people were really great swimmers and that certainly helps to be like a really good swimmer when you're there. Some people are not that good of swimmers and they just get through. So I'm just kind of curious personally, what was the hardest part from your SEAL experience, like becoming a SEAL? Yeah, I think, you know, the one thing, you know, I never, I never really came to the point in SEAL training where I was getting ready to ring the bell, right? Which is the famous kind of thing from, but it's called SEAL training. It's called BUDS, basic underwater demolition SEAL training, six month selection assessment process. And it's famous because you ring a bell when you want to quit, when you can't take any more, or you just say, I quit, I DOR, and then you got to go ring the bell. But I, I never got to the point where I was there, but I always kind of struggled with confidence, right? Because mm-hmm. I had kind of built BUDS up to be this, impossible mountain to climb, right? Only such a select few people get through training this hard. And who am I to do that? So I kind of every once in a while would kind of have that imposter syndrome from being there. But what I finally started to to realize is it, it was never quite as hard. It was very, very hard and very challenging, but never quite as hard as I had built it up in my mind. And so People ask me, you know, because they talk of like Hell Week is legendary, right? It's legendary for its uh, brutality and uh, for the fact that it attracts the, the largest amount of trainees in any one SEAL training class. But for me, the hardest part was the first week, right? The first week of training, right? You just, you're there for pre-training for several weeks and then first phase starts and shave your head and they just bring the hammer because there's a lot there's a lot of guys that they know clearly don't belong right mm-hmm. they're just there and they just want to hurry up and just get rid of those as soon as possible so they just bring the hammer it starts off with a room inspection on monday which nobody's ever going to pass and you just get hammered buddy carries sprints all this kind of stuff, wet and sandy, and it just doesn't stop for about four days. And so I think we we uh, we just cleaned out about 25, 30 guys right off the bat. In fact, I tell the story about how I came back to my room one day. There's about six of us in, in the barracks. And I come back, and, and all my roommates are, are packing all their stuff up. And I, I was like, well, are, what's going on? Where are we going? Hmm. And they were all quitting. Oh, wow. And they were like, yeah, this ain't for us. And I'm like, well, <laughs> it's still for me. You know, I, I, you know, it's almost like a little bit of that. And I hate to say it, like even during hell week, right. You get this, um, you know, a lot of guys quit because they can't take the cold water. And so you'll do what's 
called surf torture where you link arms and you step out into the surf zone and you have just cold water. You're sitting in cold water and it just keeps washing over your face, up your nose. You're choking on it. And, and a lot of guys will just be like, I'm out. I, I can't take this anymore. And I always felt like if you've ever watched, you're, you're a little bit young for this movie, but the Highlander from like 1986. Yeah. Right. When the guy, you know, every time the immortal chops another head off, <laughs> Uh, another immortal to get that power. Well, yeah. I, I kind of, and I hate this, it sounds crappy to say, yeah. but every time somebody quit and I still was there, I kind of felt like a little bit stronger, like a little bit more like, yeah, mm -hmm. they quit. They can't take it. I can still take it. Did that help you feel like you belong? Cause you mentioned what you kind of struggle with that imposter syndrome, but as people are getting their heads chopped off, as people are leaving, <laughs> did that, did that make you feel like, Oh man, maybe I do belong here. Yeah, and that's and that is concurrently that's happening with the friendships that I'm developing within the class, the guys that I'm like, and 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 so another thing that's important, right? You start off a goal, right? You start off doing something of that level of consequence or intensity, you know, it reveals really quickly where your priorities are in terms of your goals. Right. And for me, it was like I'm like, I want to jump out of planes and paint my face green and crawl around and do cool guy commando stuff. And while that was still important, what I realized is that was not enough for me. Mm -hmm. Instead, what I found was I looked around to the left and right of me and I saw guys, a caliber of guys in which I had never met before. And I immediately felt like I had a home there. And these are the guys that I wanted to spend a lot of time with. This was like, I, I started seeing these guys as part of my family. And I felt like I did. I felt like I, I, I found a home. So I went from lacking confidence and not belonging to, to maybe still lacking confidence, but still really committed to kind of being a part of this family and being a part of this, what we refer to as the brotherhood. Were there any commonalities between those people that didn't make it? Because I, I think in a way, I mean, SEAL training is maybe on a totally different level. It is on a different level, but I, you could analogize SEAL training with any difficult pursuit. And I'm just wondering if you think back of the people that didn't make it, or even as you became a SEAL and learned people that, that didn't cut it, were there things that stand out as trends in terms of people that just, just couldn't cut it or couldn't get through? Well, in the first part is like, you, you have to, you know, being in incredible physical condition is a given, right? The better you are at swimming, the better you are at, for me, I, the first time ever doing an obstacle course was at SEAL training and I was terrible at it, right? <laughs> but the better you are at all of these things, the lighter the load, right? The less toll it takes on your body, the less stress you have. But, you know, I, I was looking at my son walked by me, he plays hockey and he's wearing this shirt that I got for him that I haven't seen him wear in a long time. And it's by this, this, this guy named uh, Jim Wender. Jim Wendler, he's uh, he was developed this strength program called 531. He's got his own website um, and he's got a really cool blog, but he has this T-shirt. It's a black T-shirt on the top. It says discipline on the bottom. It says motivation. And the mathematical formula is discipline over motivation because a lot of guys are motivated to be a SEAL, right? You're motivated to go be a doctor. You're motivated to go through four years of school, but once you step into that period of darkness, once you you take that hard journey and things get hard and you have that little voice when you're cold, wet and tired in the middle of the night that says, hey, you're not good enough. You don't belong here. Right. That's when you have to be able to push motivation to the side 
and really dig into your discipline, right? And discipline is simply being able to better align your actions, your behaviors with your goal, right? And a lot of guys who aren't successful couldn't do that, right? They couldn't, you know, and you simply put is they just weren't committed enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's probably the basic thing, right? Is the people that make it through, obviously they're in great shape, but they're supremely committed. Now their internal motivations, right? Their external and, you know, internal motivations, they may, they may vary, they may differ, but ultimately that's what they are. They are supremely committed. And that's to me, I was, I was no physical stud. I was no, no great athlete, but I was in good enough shape. And I was, I was more committed than a lot of the people who didn't make it. Had you always been that way? Like a committed, disciplined person? No. Okay. You know, like I said, I was like, I was a terrible student. I was not a good athlete. I always say like, I'm being generous to myself. If I say I was a mediocre soccer player, right. (laughs) Uh, But I found that one thing I find, I found that one thing that lit a spark. Right. And you see that with entrepreneurs. Right. Maybe they go to college. They drop out. of. They may drop out of high school. They may drop out of college. They're just not engaged until they find that one thing, that one thing that lights them up, that one thing where they find purpose and they align that purpose with that action. And then there's no stopping them. Right. And that's I think it was just a matter of me finding something that could really give me drive and purpose. And from there, I, I had to you know, put all the work in, right? You, you you have to sacrifice and you have to turn things down, right? It's the athletes that I interview, right? Say the same thing. Like, you know, you're in high school. You don't go to parties uh, and, and get drunk because you got a game the next day or you got practice that weekend. And it was the same thing for me when I was training to go to Bud's when I was in Connecticut. I always had guys like, come on, middle of the week, let's go drink. And I'm like, no, I'll have, I'll have some beers with you Friday, Saturday night, but not I'm training midweek. I am training. I am working out and nothing's getting in my way of that. Going maybe more practical. I'm just trying to think of the audience out there and they're thinking, Hey, I want to be more disciplined. Right. What's your advice to people who want to become more disciplined? That, that word just keeps coming up over and over again in my life. I, I consider myself to be fairly disciplined, but I've even in the last couple of months, started to get more disciplined with some of these key habits that I want to like, I really want to start my day with reading instead of like scrolling on my phone. I want to start my day with working out so that that's done. Yeah. Um, You know, and I've just found that like, I can be a very like intense person where I, I want to go all in and do it really hard, but I'm not always the most consistent person. And I've learned to really respect those people who can be consistent in a pursuit and naturally just like with money, right? If you do a little bit and you do it consistently, you can create some pretty incredible results. Um, so I'm just curious from your perspective, someone's listening and there's like, man, Steve in Navy seal, we're talking about discipline. We're talking about purpose. Like what advice would you give to them to become more disciplined? Well, and that's where you know, a lot of times you can have passion for something, right? Like I can have, you can have passion and enthusiasm, right? You can have motivation for something. Like here's an example. Like when I was deciding when I was still in the military that I wanted to be a professional speaker, no idea what that entailed. I knew you had to be good at speaking, right? I knew that I enjoyed doing 
instruction and that type of thing in the military, but I had no idea what I was getting myself into super naive as it relates to the business elements, right? Your actual, it's like anything that you work on in a business, whether it's your own or something else, the things, whether you're in sales, the time that you, if you love being in front of the customer, like that's such a small amount of what you actually do. Everything else, administrative, follow-up, working on all the aspects of the business that you don't want to do. So one of the things that I always do, and I started doing this when I got to boot camp and I was training the recruits that were wanting to try out to be SEALs, um, divers, air rescue swimmers, I would start with them. Like I knew that really to enable their long-term successes, I had to get inside their heads. And one of the ways we did that was, seems very cheesy, very hokey, but to get them to write out a personal mission statement. And I do this today. I do this with corporate audiences, with my coaching clients, is write out that personal mission statement, right? Who you are, what you stand for, and how fundamentally you show up in the world, right? You show up to the most important people and to the most important situations in your life. And so you have to figure out what that looks like. So you write down what exactly are my priorities, right? You've got to write it down. You've got to put pen to paper when you're free of stress, when you're clear of thought, and you're like, all right, how does somebody who wants these things, how do they act, right? Mm. If I had another thing I learned from, from stoicism, I know like a lot of the Stoics, Marcus Aurelius, things like that, uh, Sto Stoic, Stoics, capital S, right? Mm -hmm. They would almost recommend, like you have a personal council of advisors, right? They don't have mm. to be real people, right? But you imagine the people that you respect the most and they're overseeing, right? They are advising you. They are maybe passing judgment on how you conduct yourself. Do the decisions that you make survive the scrutiny of the people that you most mm. admire, Whoa. right? And if not, then you need to realign yourself, right? And it's constant assessment. It's constant self-talk, right? Because the thing is we fall short. That's the human condition, right? We have what we say we want to do, where we want to go, how we're going to get there, but we are going to stray from that path. And so when that happens, we have to be able to hold ourselves accountable, but we have to be able to forgive ourselves and then just say, okay, I, I wasn't all in when I should have been. I fell short. I acted in a way that's out of character of what my values are, but here's how I get back on the train, right? You've got to know values. You've got to know your personal beliefs, right? And most importantly, right, you've got to be able to say, how do I live, live those out, right? How do I live those out through principles? I really appreciate that idea of a kind of a board of advisors or people that you're 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 seeing whether your actions are aligning with these people that you respect. Because uh, I can just picture myself, because a lot of the decisions I make every day, no one sees. Like no one sees whether I choose to get up when my alarm clock goes off or I hit snooze for another thirty minutes. And that's kind of a you know maybe a minor point, but those little micro decisions I make throughout the day are me choosing to either live in line with my highest values or to kind of compromise for the immediate, Hey, I want to sleep it a little bit longer. Um, and add, added that up over time. I'm either becoming more of who I want to be, or I'm really becoming just kind of a compromised version of my best self. Um, you mentioned a personal mission statement and you kind of talk through some of those components to it. I'm wondering if you could share yours or maybe an example of what that might look like, because that sounds really helpful yeah. to someone who's trying to 
identify their purpose and get clarity about like, hey, what what direction am I even heading towards? If I'm trying to lead myself, if I'm trying to become more disciplined, well, like it's probably helpful to know who I'm trying to become as well. Yeah. And so the, the, the one that I try to use as a, like, you don't have to have just one. I have one for my personal, you know, conduct. I have my personal life. And the, the one I choose to use for business is I say, you know, I work to get better every day, even if it's just by a little bit. I don't crumble when things get hard. And instead, I seek opportunity in all situations. I exist to be of service and I do for the people to the left and right of me. And so if I unpack that a little bit, right, it doesn't really matter what it is. It doesn't have to be sexy. It doesn't have to be eloquent. It just has to be something that keeps you guided, right? And so I say I work to get better every day, right? Okay, so that's my call to action when it comes to what have I done on my business? What have I done in my business? What have I done today to further enhance my craft as a speaker, right? What have I done to further advance uh, you know, develop my marketing, develop my outreach, right? And so we're always beset with circumstances that don't go our way, right? And for me, it's a lot of, you know, I, I hold a lot of dates and then I get a lot of emails that say, hey, sorry, you can release that date. We're going with somebody else. And, and it's easy to kind of get, let that throw you, right? To get upset or, you know, for example, during COVID when all my speaking dried up, it's easy to do that. But if you instead look at opportunity in every situation, right? And this is huge. This is probably the most important thing in that mission statement is there is always opportunity, right? And you mm-hmm. say, all right, well, I, I've, I've had, I faced loss, the death of a loved one. How is that opportunity, right? I lost my job. How is that opportunity? Well, it's opportunity for you to respond with your best self, right? It's opportunity for you to show up as a leader for your family, setting a good example for your kids, leading those around you. It's an opportunity to demonstrate forgiveness, to, to demonstrate grace, right? That if you see things in that vein, it makes dealing with the rough season life a lot more difficult or a lot more, uh, a lot easier in my experience. Going back to that, did you say board of advisors? Am I using the right term? Yeah, I mean, that's, I, that, I am paraphrasing that. I don't remember okay. what the exact language was. And, and again, that can be, and I recommend both, right? I, me- I recommend if you were like, hey, somebody that you really resonate with, maybe it's not even somebody you know personally, maybe it's somebody that's moved on, yeah. like my Uncle Jack. Yeah. But it's also probably specific people in your life that you know are going to hold you accountable, right? That are going to tell you the truth, right? There's this research that says, hey, I'm going to start a new fitness challenge. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to lose 25 pounds by next summer and I'm going to post it all over social media. Well, they get so many accolades from random people coming in that they're like, they get such a buzz from that. <laughs> they, they don't, they're no longer inspired to mm. complete that goal. Whereas if they actually get people who are going to be given the hard truth, the radical candor in their life, they're going to be a lot more willing and committed to going down that, that path, right. To, to staying within those lines. Yeah. I, that definitely resonates with me. And just, I think there's a deep need for community, a deep need for accountability. What does that look like for you? Like, how do you, what, who are some of your board of advisors, whatever you want to call it. And how do they, how do they help you as you kind of go through life? 
Yeah, so I have I have certain people within uh, my public speaking community. I have some people that have really been great mentors in my life. And I kind of say, hey, I've got these certain plans. And then I'll check in with them, right? I have an obligation to check in with them after every couple of months and say, this is where I'm at. Or maybe they'll reach out to me and be like, hey, how's that book coming? Like, ah, well, you know, it's like, well, I will get, you better get in gear, right? It's like, hey, it's not going to write itself. You better, you better get moving on it, right? Because I don't, I don't care what it is, right? And that's the same thing, you know, you mentioned that piece, the community, right? We often say like peer pressure is, is got a negative connotation to it. But I'll tell you what, when, when, you know, military folks go through a door where somebody is waiting for them on the other side that could shoot them in the face, they're often doing it because of that peer pressure, right? Because the thought of being thought a coward, the thought of letting the teammates down is greater than the fear of death, right? And so that's where that sense of community does come in. And that's where when you develop strong bonds, right? And it's, you understand that I don't have to do hard things by myself, I don't have to go through this alone, right? And if in the military, you're not going to do great things on your own. It's only going to be by, with, and through the people to the left and right of you. That's how you get things done. And so it's the same in our regular lives, our personal lives, as entrepreneurs, as business leaders. We don't have to do it by ourselves. And often we can't. I I agree. And it, it, it takes vulnerability, it seems, especially when we're talking about like something like writing a book. You when you actually commit to other people saying, "Hey, I'm going to write a book," and you know these people are going to hold you accountable, that that initial sharing with them takes a little bit of vulnerability and it seems like a little bit of courage because it would be a lot easier if you're not willing to work hard just to be, just to not tell anyone because then no right. one's holding you accountable or certainly not tell people when you're maybe not meeting your targets. I mean, like, hey guys, and I know I said I was going to write this book, but. I'm only, you know, so many words in, I'm not meeting my goals. So I, I just, I wonder if some people avoid community and avoid accountability because it's just easier to do that. I mean, you don't, you're not going to propel yourself beyond where you are without community, but it's just easier to, to avoid the, the effort, right? It's easier to just kind of shirk back and say, well, you know, I'm not going to share I'm not going to really share with anyone my goals because then I would actually have to be held accountable to them. No, I would imagine, I would imagine that's true. I would imagine that's true in a lot. And I think, you know, this is not directly in line with your question or statement, but, you know, I think it's so many cases, right? I think the way our society is structured, it's so difficult to kind of maintain that singular focus on things, right? And for me, that's, you know, that's what I love. That's one of the reasons why, I probably spend more time focusing on the thing that I like in, in my business, which is, you know, perfecting or not perfecting, but enhancing my, my stagecraft, right. As a speaker, because that's the fun stuff. That's the things. And, and it's also the one thing I can provide singular focus because oftentimes we're in love with the idea of doing something mm -hmm. right. Until we actually go in there and do the work, right? And I mentioned this earlier, right? There's a ton of people that are in love with the idea of being a Navy SEAL, right? But but that motivation piece and actually 
doing the work is a whole different animal. And I think there's so many times where you see something, right? You're like, oh, I'll do a podcast, right? I'll do this. And you're like, all right, well, then you start doing it. And you're just, Mm -hmm. you know, you like the idea of it. But what I would say with all of that little diatribe is that it's like, pick what you really are going to do, right? Don't try to do it all because you can't do it all effectively. Mm -hmm. Try to narrow the scope of that attention and that focus to something that you can go all in. Doesn't mean everything else slides off the plate, but you're like, you know what? Like, because for me, it was the book, right? It's like, yeah, I got all these other things I could be doing. I'd love to do a podcast. I'd love to do, I need to do more on social media, but guess what? I got to do this. I got to get this book done. This has to be my focus. And I got to start pushing other things out of the way a little bit. Let's get into what it was like. You've gotten through SEAL training and you're you're actually a SEAL at this point. What SEAL team were you on? So my first team, I showed up uh, SEAL Team 2 in 1996, East Coast SEAL. And at the time, they were, and it's kind of changed over the years, but at the time, it was funny because we're at buds and you're in third phase of training and everybody it's like winter time. And we actually got a lot of us got colder on like your last part of training in seal training is San Clemente Island. It's an Island out in the, uh, you know, in the Pacific, one of the channel islands out there and your Catalina and it's isolated. And we were, we were cold out there. And so everybody's picking where they want to go. So like all the classes, like, you know, I'm going to go to SEAL Team 4. It's jungle. It's going to be warm. You know, the guys are like, oh, I'm going to go to SEAL Team 1. It's going to be, you know, the, the Philippines and that that Southeast Asia. And I'm like, my people come from where it rains all the time. I'm pasty white frog, man. How do I go to Europe? That's where I think I, that's where I, think I need to go. And that was SEAL Team 2. SEAL Team 2 was the Europe and, and kind of a little bit into kind of the Mediterranean, the Middle East. Um, but they would deploy on ships, but mostly it was to Europe. And if you deployed in the wintertime, then you're going to work with the Norwegian Jaegers who are like the most experienced at winter warfare. You're going to learn skiing. You're going to learn all that stuff. And if you deploy in the summer, you're just going to do other stuff, but you're always going to be working with other folks. And that was all again, pre nine 11. And then did you eventually go to a different seal team? You mentioned that you started out with seal team two. Yeah, and uh, I I went and at some point SEAL Team Two became SEAL Team Four, and I went to at, at that point I went over to a training command. After that, after I did a few deployments at, at SEAL Team Two, went over to training command. I had orders to go to uh, SME, a Special Missions Unit, and I got hurt, and so that didn't work out for me. Uh, long story short, did some training, went back. Went back to the teams after that, did some more deployments, did some more training um, before I came up here at, uh, you know, in Great Lakes, Illinois. So what, I mean, because a lot of people maybe know, seen the movies, generally know what a SEAL is, but what, like, what do SEALs really do? Like, what what was your, and some of this, you obviously only talk about what you can talk about, yeah. but like, what, what is the typical week look like for a Navy SEAL? Yeah, so essentially, really, if you look at, you know, Special Operations Soft, they call it United States Special Operations Command Units. Everybody's kind of got their own thing that they bring to the table, right? And if you look at, like, um, the main ground units now, back then, there was no um, there was no MARSOC, Marine Special Operations Command, but uh, right right after 9-11, 
you know, Rumsfeld basically said, hey, told the Marine Corps they're going to stand up their own um, special operations component. And so, yeah, Marsoc, the, the, the Raiders, uh, I didn't really spe- – I, I didn't work with them much at all, so I don't know much about them. But we – between us, Army Special Forces – uh, SEALs, we all kind of do very much the same thing. And the SEALs, and probably to a degree, the Marines, we're the maritime component uh, of the United States Special Operations Command, right? And so Sea, Air, and Land, which many people don't even realize, stands for Sea, Air, Air, SEAL is the acronym, and it stands for Sea, Air, and Land, right? And so we train a lot. And, you know, ultimately, we got to be the ones that can do combat swimmer, right? Nobody else in the U.S. military does combat diving. People will dive, Army and the Marine Corps will dive to get like from an objective to get over the beach, but we're the only ones that do purpose-driven missions for that, right? And and believe it or not, that's the hardest thing in, in special operations is the maritime component, is trying to get across the beach, changing out of your dry suits. Mm-hmm. It, it seems very simple, but in practice, it's very difficult. Hitting your target at night in pitch black, in 10 feet of water, with nothing but a compass and a stopwatch and a study of the tides and currents and whatever photos you have <laughs> making it through all kinds of various currents. There's not much harder in military special operations in terms of the skill set and being successful at it. And so that's what we do. We have to train in all those areas. We go down five, six weeks in the middle of the South and we do, we do urban warfare. We do close quarter combat. We do land warfare. We do a lot of it. Right. We do a lot of stuff on land, but ultimately we've got to be able to do the maritime stuff. Right. We do a lot of air work, you know, helicopters, uh, free fall parachuting, things like that, uh, jumping our boats out. But, yeah, so we all, our always thing is, you know, and we've those skills have atrophied a lot after 2000. After once we started biting off uh, Iraq, we had the surge in 2006. We really let a lot of those maritime skills atrophy. But then we've since, uh, from what I understand, gotten back to a lot of them because that's really what separates us, right? We really are the guys, the only ones that can do what we do when it comes to the maritime capability. And how many times did you deploy? Seven. Oh, my goodness. And where where were those two? If you can talk about it, I don't know if you can. Yeah, uh, Europe, uh, Middle East, Iraq, Afghanistan. Wow. A uh, couple other places. Yeah, so... Life on the X. So that's the name of your book that'll be coming out uh, at some point, um, late 2022, maybe 2023. What does that mean? Life on the X? Yeah. So in the military, you know, we have this term, especially the Special Operations Command. I don't know how ubiquitous it is in the rest of the military, but if we fast rope out of a helicopter and we land on a rooftop of a target building that we're assaulting as, as a SEAL element, we, we refer to that as actually landing on the X. Think of it as X marks the spot, right? We drive up to the front door of a target building in our armored vehicles. We get out, we blow the door in. That's we're, we're landing, we're driving up to the X. We also use it if we're patrolling down the street, the enemy shoots at us, the enemy ambushes us, right? Whether we're on foot or in vehicles, that moment where we're taking that fire, that's the X. And so in that case, we got to get off the X. So that was my inspiration is using that X. And the metaphor, the example is that we all face that to some degree in our life, right? Whether it's, you know, nobody's getting shot at probably for most of the people out there, but you have certain things where it's, it's, it's jobs, careers, reputations, relationships that are on the line, right? And within that you face fear, you face overwhelm, and you face generally a feeling of being unprepared. 
mm-hmm. right? And it, but within all of those op- with all those moments of that fear and that overwhelm and that anxiety, opportunity exists there in most cases, right? Real opportunity, opportunity to lead as your best self, opportunity to lead your family, right? Opportunity to to land a deal, to pitch a, a client successfully, right? But you have to be deliberate, right? You cannot wing it. You cannot take it by chance. You have to make sure that you're well-prepared, you're well-rehearsed, but you have the mental capacity to be able to do those things in the clutch, right? <laughs> when you get thrown that curveball, you don't get emotionally hijacked. You stay in the fight, you stay engaged, you feel confident, and, and you feel ready. When you think about stress management, performing under pressure, you get a lot of experience doing that. Are there any concrete methods that you would offer to people to perform well under pressure? Because you're right. I mean, we all have stress. We all have the requirement to perform under pressure. Maybe it's a meeting that you have to lead. Maybe you're preparing to speak in front of people. Maybe it's just you're a student and you're getting ready to take a test. I mean, there's we all feel pressure to perform. So I'm just curious from a kind of a practical standpoint, yeah. what would you tell people to help improve in that area? There's a lot of things there. You know, it's when I interviewed for my book for the part of it where I interviewed professional athletes, right? And uh, Olympians, the one thing they all kind of had in common was this concept of what I call being brilliant on the basics, right? And really you can think of it as you go into a situation, right? You want to eliminate as many of these micro decisions as possible, right? To, to have as clear ahead as possible, which means that you set the table for success by making all the decisions well in advance, right? As the athletes, they would say, hey, I'm going to pack my locker the exact same way every, every mm-hmm. time, right? Shoes here, hat there, helmet there, uniforms there. And, and I'll never have to question if it's there, how it gets done, you know, if it's been done, Right. And for one of the football players I interviewed, he said, I knew exactly where I was going to sit, what I was going to eat the next day before a game. I knew exactly where I was going to go to and what I was going to focus on. Right. And when you do all those things in advance and you combine that with a rehearsal of your training, right, you've put the reps and sets in, not just random reps and sets, but thoughtful, deliberate reps and sets in with what you need to do. Okay. You're going to go to do a pitch in front of the C-suite tomorrow or, or a, a sales call in front of a customer. Okay. What have you done? You better go ahead and actually walk through that and rehearse it just like you're there. Now, once you actually get in there and things go sideways, you have to have the mental skills, right? And so that's where in the warrior toughness program that I helped develop, we would use certain mental skills exercises, mental skills, training and techniques, right? And some of that is lowering your energy through specific breathing techniques, putting yourself in that moment, in that putting yourself on the X well in advance by mentally rehearsing everything that you're going to do and using mindfulness training to make sure that your levels of focus are increased, that you're more mindful when you feel the symptoms of stress, like your hands sweating, your heart racing. When you start engaging, investing in those skills, it allows you to absorb a lot more of the curveballs, right? You know, for me as a speaker, right, the power might come off, but my, my slides might not come up, right? I might get stuck and forget what I'm going to say next, but I can't let that take me out of the saddle, right? I can't let me take that down a river of emotional hijacking. I have to be able to flex. And I do that when I, I practice mental skills. Man, that's so good. So the other day I got asked to speak 
the speaker that was going to be speaking at this event, it was a graduation, uh, canceled, can't remember exactly what happened, but it was kind of short notice. And so I said, sure, I'll go speak. Um, and I didn't do a lot of the things that you just said. I didn't go and go to the physical place and figure out, okay, where am I going to be speaking? Uh, I wasn't sure if I could use my notes or not. I wasn't even quite sure who was going to be there. Um, and so I felt a lot of those things you just described. I failed to do a lot of those things you just described. And even though I was pretty prepared with what I was going to say, I didn't feel as confident in that moment. When I got to the location, they were like, hey, actually, the podium is going to be over here. Yeah, you can't really use your notes because the you, it, normally the speaker just stands up and just speaks to the crowd. And actually, the people that you're speaking to are kind of over here on the left, not on the right. Um, the distinguished visitor that was going to come is not going to come. I mean, it was just, and a lot of what you're saying made sense. And so I, I think if I'd had some of these mental tools to go to of like, oh man, I had a plan and now my plan's kind of taking some contact and I got to adjust on that. Um, so all of that makes sense. And uh, I wish I'd had you to coach me prior to that, that session, but I'm, I'm curious what are some of the specific things maybe that you do when you've got a plan, maybe you've made, you've really prepared well, but then your plan takes contact and you've got to, you got to react, you got to adjust. Yeah. I always say like one of the biggest things I say, don't react, respond. Mm. Right. And you know, it's semantics to a degree. Right. But it's, you know, I always look at it like this, right. If, if you're, if you're, a professional basketball player, right. And I throw a ball at you. I don't care if it's a baseball or a soccer ball. Like you're not going to react. You're going to respond because you're programmed to do that. Right. Whereas if you're not an athlete, you, you spend all your time playing Dungeons and Dragons, right. It's going to be a probably more of a reaction, right. Mm -hmm. You may duck away. You may be ineffective. Right. And so my point there is, is that you are deliberate in how you set the table. Right. And so for example, if, how, how would I prepare? Cause this happens to me. I knew it was going to happen. I knew eventually I'm going to get up there. And my slides aren't going to work. Right. Well, what do I do about that? Well, I make sure that I could give the damn speech without needing any slides. <laughs> right. And I also have to, not only that, but I got to be prepared for when I'm in the middle and all of a sudden my slides pop up and they're right in front of me. Right. You know, if they're in, in the confidence uh, monitor, and they're not anywhere near with where I'm talking. I have to be prepared for what my response is to that level of distraction. Right. I, when I see somebody who is just like on their cell phone when I'm talking, right, I, yeah. I got to move right on. Right. I, when somebody does something distracting, I've already kind of set the table for that. Mm. Right. It's one of the football players, coaches used to say, don't let the first time you're taking the field be the first time you're taking the field. Mm. Right. You've already had to been there mentally before that happens. But you actually have to play it out. And so, like, but you don't know what you don't know. But now you know what you need to do next time. I do. Right? Because that's yeah. the other critical element. The model that I teach off of is commit, prepare, execute, and reflect. Commit is the character piece, right? It's the things we talked about. Nest within that is the, you know, is the personal mission statement. The prepare piece is the rehearsal, right? It's the anticipating curveballs. Right. And it's also the mental skills training. The execute piece is specifically getting ready to walk out onto that stage. Right. But after that is the reflect piece. Right. Our ability to grow, to develop, to improve is only as good as our ability to draw the right conclusions 
but to intentionally and deliberately put them in to our action plan the next time we got to go do it. And so mm-hmm. for you, you probably learned a lot of that, yeah. right? Because you just rattled it off to me. But are you going to commit to writing that down and making sure that everything that you've learned, every level of discomfort that you felt or lack of preparation, because you didn't know any better, you're not going to let it happen again now. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And it's interesting because I spent a lot of time as a prosecutor and you know, I'm used to getting up in front of people and speaking in that context where it's you know, you've got a closing argument, you've got to give to a jury, you've got to be prepared for your slides, you've got to incorporate the evidence, you've got to be persuasive, you've got to be rehearsed. So I I kind of knew that I should do more of those things. Not that, that particular speech, I procrastinated probably more than I should. Mm-hmm. I didn't rehearse as much as I should, which which did affect my confidence. I wasn't as confident as I normally am going into a speech because I know it cold. There, you know, normally yeah. I go in and I'm just like, I got this. So like you throw a bunch of variables at me, like, oh, okay, I'm I'm overconfident, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I think part of it for just doing a quick self-reflection is some of it I didn't actually follow the formula that I know I need to do. So that's a that's a lesson of like, hey, reaffirm the your commitment to those principles that you normally follow. Do that. Like, make sure you. There's a reason you rehearse. There's a reason you prepare. Um, and then, yeah, to your point of like, there's also some variables that you hadn't considered before that you should consider. I've actually got a speech that I'm doing this Saturday, and I have already kind of tried to incorporate, but I haven't done it as deliberate of a process as what you just said of like writing it down. And trying to incorporate, so I, I really like that framework. Uh, the four pillars that you just just mentioned. What do you do before you speak? Like, what do you do? Right? What's your kind of process to get ready for a big speech? Yeah. So, I mean, depending on how how far out you want to talk, I mean, because every speech that I do, right, I, I have the core of what I talk about, but I always try to implement a level of customization, right? I don't, I'm not, you know, I, I'm like the Grateful Dead, right? I don't want to keep giving the same speech <laughs> twice, right? Even though a lot of my bits and stories are the same, but I, there's got to be a level of like, I've got to make the audience be able to see themselves in, in my stories, in my examples, right? And so I've got to have a level of customization. And so I'm building that, right? I, I'm continuing to, to focus that, to work on that. And, and honestly, I, I have a, a little a little studio space in my in my basement, and I rehearse it. And part of that is, is what we call blocking and staging, which means part of the memorization process are the movements that I make, right? I don't just move around on the stage willy-nilly. Every time I make a movement, it's for a specific reason. And when I do that, it helps anchor the words that come out of my mouth. Because when you move, when you associate movement with your speech, it helps anchor, it helps you memorize that type of thing, right? Um, and then, you know, what you always want to do when you get ready to do something, you want to have earned what they call in performance psychology, a performance statement or performance mantra, hmm. right? And that is just a validation or revalidation that you have done the work, right? Because if you're a professional and you show up, you're still going to likely feel nervous, especially if the stakes are high, right? You may feel your hands sweating, your heart racing. You might have that pit uh, in your stomach, but you got to tell yourself, this is how I rehearsed. This is what I worked on. This is what I know. I own this. I got this. I'm ready for a curveball. Mm. Now I'm going to go kick it in the ass. You know, you want to get to the point where you feel you've earned that statement because that statement just reminds you. 
It's that little boost of confidence because the more confident we are, just we can be nervous. We can be nervous, but confident at the same time. The more confident we are, the higher we're going to perform in a situation. It seems in the scenario you just described to have that mantra that you have to prepare. Otherwise, that's kind of an empty mantra. Is that true or am I mis- am I kind of misunderstanding that? Because I there's I guess there's also situations though that are more more spontaneous of like, hey, I'm throwing you right up there and you got to give a speech or you got to tell a joke. I don't know. I'm just trying to but, so yeah, no, that's it. Yeah, yeah, you're you're saying more impromptu, right? It's specific preparation versus general preparation. Yeah. Right. And I, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but it's like you, you know, we have in in military doctrine, you have a hasty assault. Yeah. Versus deliberate assault, right? A hasty yeah. assault is you're you're moving down the street, right? And you get ambushed and you've got to clear a building real quick, get everybody out of out of the kill zone, out off that X it, off the street into a into a house. And so you you hastily clear as opposed to, hey, I'm going after this bad guy. This right. is deliberate, it's pre-planned, right? And so if you are gonna find yourself in a situation, now you cannot realistically plan for everything, right? You yeah. just can't. You can't say, I'm going to be ready for this. I'm going to be ready to, to be engaged in an MMA fight and be, be really good on my pistol and then go give a speech at a moment's notice, right? That's not realistic. But if there's certain things that you might find yourself in, you can develop certain skills, right? If if you know that you're, and a, and a good friend of mine uh, has a, a really good book called um, The Attributes. It's, I think, 25 Drivers for uh, Hidden Performance, uh, former SEAL Rich Davini. And he kind of talks about like really understanding which attributes that you may be weak in, right? You may not be strong on adaptability. You may find yourself in a situation where if you get thrown a curveball, you just shut down. So you need to work on that uh, level of, of building that type of resilience. Um, but when you basically say, all right, I- I'm getting ready to take to the stage and I, I-, I-, I wasn't planning like literally like, hey, come on down. Can you give it, give us a few words? Because they don't realize <laughs> what it takes to go up there and look like, yeah. you, you know, you got your stuff together. You're like, all right. You're like, you, you got to set your reference point, right? You're mm-hmm. like, all right, I'm not expected to be polished. I'm not going to mm-hmm. hold myself to the same standard as if I would if I had practiced. But mm-hmm. here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do some breathing. I'm going to inhale diaphragmatically through in my nose, filling up my diaphragm. I'm going to inhale. For five seconds, I'm going to pause and hold for two. I'm going to exhale for six seconds, pause and hold for two. I'm going to do that a couple of times, and it's going to lower my energy, lower my arousal a little bit, and hopefully it's going to bring my, my attention. It's going to remind me that, hey, you got this. You're not going to be killed if, if you make a mistake on stage. <laughs> that's really good. That's that's super helpful. Well, Steve, I want to ask you just real quick as we're wrapping up here about how you lead yourself. We've talked about a lot of this, um, but I want to get into some specific habits. What are some specific habits, routines, rituals that you do to lead yourself? Things that have really kind of helped you get to that next level. Yeah. And so I, I've, I structure my workout program, you know, it changes sometimes, but working out is a huge, it's been conditioned in me since, I mean, ever since I was in high school, right. But it's important just because I think what people don't realize is like for you to be your best, right? You've got to have your mind, body, and soul. You've got to have those 
three buckets. You've got to give those three buckets. There's three areas, a lot of attention, right? And so when it comes to my mind, right, I've got to sharpen my mental skills. I've got to learn new information. I've got to work on mindfulness training, which also transcends into the spiritual side. But mindfulness training is my ability. When I do mindfulness training, it helps sharpen my focus. And it also helps me become more aware of the thoughts that may be going on in my head that don't serve me. Yeah. Right. And so that's really big on what I do is I always try to check in with myself periodically. And I start in the morning. I say, all right, I do a gratitude exercise. What am I grateful for? And it's got to be something unique that day. You can't keep saying the whole thing or it just becomes white noise. Here's what I'm grateful for. When I find myself getting upset about something or, or I start to try to put things into perspective by stopping and saying, all right, what are the thoughts in my head? If I was a cartoon character, what are the thought bubbles going on in my head right now? And how do I redirect, reframe and replace those thoughts with those that help me? Right. That's a big thing. I don't always work out the same day. I don't, I'm flexible with that. It kind of depends on what I got going on, but I make sure I always provide time for that. You know, so it's mind, right? The mindfulness training, mental skills training, learning new information, practicing my craft. It's a body, right? Physical exercise, walking, not just as a workout, but walking just as a time to kind of connect what's going on in my head with, with my surroundings, just being, just getting movement in. And then soul, right? Is checking in. Where am I with my personal mission statement? What am I grateful for today? Right. That type of thing. So that's kind of how I, that's what keeps me going. That's how I structure. I know it's kind of loose. Maybe that's no, I, I super directive, but no, it's actually really helpful. I like the, it's, it's both specific, but it's also flexible. It's nimble. I've actually started giving myself space on workouts. For example, it's to me, it's the first two things I do in the morning. I first, I start out, I, I read, um, I, I like to read, uh, scripture in the morning and then I go for a run. Um, and I've started to give myself flexibility on what that run looks like. Some days it's like literally a 10 minute run. It's just like, I've only got 10 minutes. And then some days it's like, okay, I've got time to go for a 45 minute long run, but it's, and I'll even allow myself to walk. And I, I've just found that like, for some reason I was getting caught in this mindset of if I can't crush myself, mm-hmm. don't do it. But I, I've kind of started to allow myself to have a little bit more of an emphasis on consistency over intensity, because I know that that, you know, little deposit over time makes a big difference for my mental health as well. Just getting out there and knowing that I moved my body at the beginning of the day. Well, and that's in that, but that goes also with being intentional and always understanding whether you're actually doing, you know, when I, when I look at like, you know, when I coach up, when I coach my kids uh, and sometimes my, my, my son's friends, when I talk to them about working out and things like that, I'm like, never do an exercise that you don't know exactly why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you go out there and you're like, all right, well, I'm going to, you know what, here's how I feel today. Maybe I, I'm just going to walk. Mm-hmm. I, I'm okay with that. Why am I walking? I'm walking because I, maybe I'm feeling a little, I'm dragging. If I push myself hard, maybe I'm just pushing myself back into uh, under recovery. So mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to focus on this, right? My goals for this walk are to really maybe clear my head, do some mindfulness yeah. walking and, and, and recover. Yeah. Yes. No, I love that. Well, Steve, tell people where they can find you. Tell us a little bit about kind of some of the stuff that you offer um, and then anything you want people to know about the book, Life on the X. 
Yeah, so I do uh, I'm a professional speaker. That's what I love to do. It's what lights me up. Um, typically keynotes, workshops. I'll do coaching on a limited basis if I feel like the fit is right and some consulting as well. I've got the book coming out as you and I are discussing, right? It's getting ready to go off to DOD for review uh, to figure out what they might want to uh, change or delete. And so we don't know exactly how long that's changed. So I'm hoping um, between October and November, the book's going to launch. So uh, follow along on my, on my website. Um, I have my email subscriptions if you want to get weekly tips. It's uh, stephendrum.com, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-D-R-U-M.com. And all the latest on the book will be there as well. Awesome, Steve. Well, thanks so much for doing this. And I'll put links to all of that in the show notes of this episode. Steve, really appreciate, thank you for your service, 27 years of service. And uh, thanks for sharing a lot of these key tips for all of us. And I can't wait to get the book. So excited to kind of watch that journey and, and find out when that's coming out. Hopefully the DOD will be quick yeah. with their review. And um, yeah, I really appreciate it, man. Hey, thanks so much, Cal. Uh, thank you for your service as well. And thanks for having me on and uh, giving me a great conversation. Friends, thanks so much for tuning in until the end. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Stephen Drum. Reach out to me at cal at calwalters.me. Let me know what you thought. Let me know what stood out to you. Let me know how you lead under pressure. What makes it difficult for you? What do you think about discipline? How are you disciplined in your life? Where do you struggle with discipline? That would really help me understand your pain points because we all have them. We all are trying to lead ourselves better. We're trying to be more disciplined. If it was easy, we wouldn't spend so much time talking about it. It's often simple. The formula is often simple, but doing so is hard. So thank you for tuning in till the end. If you enjoyed this episode, would you mind taking just one or two minutes to go over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating, a review. I will read that. I'll probably give you a shout out next episode if you take the time to do that. So thank you to all of you that have already done that. And thanks for, again, Stephen, for coming on the show today. Really enjoyed getting to know you. I hope you go and make a difference in the people that you interact with on a daily basis, your family, people you interact with at work. Go lean into them, help them lead themselves. And it just helps make our world a better place. Remember that life is short, so let's go make it count.